Amen. Amen. I praise God. You may be seated if you like. You can stand if you'd like. It's the first Sunday of the month. And here at Faith Family, since I was a child in diapers, the first Sunday of the month is Communion Sunday. Just tradition, no special thing about the day. But Jesus said, as often as you eat these and drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. It's one of the two ordinances he gave us to remember his death and to be baptized in water, which is also about his death and his resurrection and our death and resurrection. By partaking of the communion, we are reminded every time that we partake of these emblems, we are all saved the same way. It is all because of the grace of God. We all come into the kingdom by kneeling, spiritually speaking, at the cross of Jesus and saying, I believe you died for me and that God raised you from the dead and that now you sit at the right hand of the Father and you have the authority and the power to forgive me of my sins and to adopt me into your family. We as humans have this tendency to want to be able to compete with one another and outdo one another and, and earn the accolades of men, thinking that we can earn the accolades of God, no matter how wonderful you are. Your goodness will not get you into heaven. It's only Jesus and his precious blood. And we're reminded of that. Jesus told us, remember my death until I come. Because it's his death that gives you life. So this morning, we're going to take the emblem of the, of the body that was broken for us. Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. Broken for you. I read Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. By his stripes, we are healed. That healing, in that context, I believe speaks of the total human experience. My body, my soul, and my spirit. We all need to be healed from sin. But in the atonement, I believe he also made, he paid the price that he could heal us of all of our diseases. Not only can he heal us of our physical diseases, but the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Peace with God, and I believe the peace of God, emotionally. Because Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It was prophesied by Isaiah, and Jesus opened that book. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are bruised. This morning, you need a physical healing. You need an emotional healing. I want you to thank the Father for it as we thank him for his body that was broken that we might be made whole. So, Lord, as I hold this emblem, symbolizing that incredible miracle that you 
the creator of heavens and earth beyond comprehension, allowed yourself to be put into a human body just like mine, except no blood from Adam, born of a virgin. You could have come into this world, a full-grown man, and did what you did, but you came as one of us through that virgin's womb. You lived a life of total obedience to the Father in heaven, to the law that you had created, totally sinless. And at the right moment in time, you laid your life down as a sacrifice, and you allowed sinful men to beat you beyond recognition so that you come alongside of us when this sinful world with its sicknesses and disease and jealousies and all kinds of hatred and things that take place and disappointments, when life beats us up, you have the power and the want to to come into that moment of our life and out of the chaos and out of the wounds to bring something beautiful to bring healing, healing of body, mind, and spirit. Lord, I pray that in this room today, individuals would experience the supernatural peace that you purchased with your broken body. I pray that healing virtue, that same healing virtue that flowed into the woman as she reached out and touched the hem of your garment, that that would flow today in the bodies of individuals as by faith, we declare, Jesus Christ, you're my healer. Oh, that individual had conversation with last night with a wounded and broken heart. God, minister to him today. May he experience your peace, your touch. Lord, we're thankful for all of these things as we eat this bread today in Jesus' name. Jesus took the cup and said, This is my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins for many. Lord, as I hold the emblem of your blood, so thankful that you became a curse for us. We have been cursed by sin dead in our sins and trespasses. No hope. But Jesus, you allowed people just like us to nail you to the cross. There you shed your blood. Blood unpolluted by sin. You became a curse and carried all of our sins. As you went into the grave, the grave could not hold you, for you were sinless. Which means that you were able to take that sacrifice into the holy of holies in heaven. There before the Father. Say, Lord, Father, the price has been paid. It is finished. It is finished. We have overcome death. We've overcome hell. Lord, I thank you today that I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt my sins are forgiven.
and I have a future in heaven. I pray that each person, the sound of my voice today, knows that in their heart. And those that you brought to this meeting for this particular moment, that as they examine their heart before we drink, and they say, Jesus, I need you to wash me with your blood. I confess my need of a Savior. I confess my sins, and I thank you for that promise. You're faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing right now in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Shall we drink? Sing it one more time. What he's done, what he's done. All the glory and the honor through his son. My sins are forgiven. My future's in heaven. I praise God for what he's done. Sing that again. What he's done, what he's done. All the glory and the honor to the Son. My sins are forgiven. My future's in heaven. I praise God for what he's done. One more time. What he's done, what he's done. All the glory and the honor to the Son. My sins are forgiven. My future's in heaven. I praise God for what he's done. I praise God for what he's done. I praise God for what he's done. And everyone said, Amen. Not only do we thank God for what he's done, we thank God for what he's doing. Thank you, musicians. Appreciate you and your ministry. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you are here and that you made this part of your holiday weekend. And I uh, want to say thank you to everyone who attended the picnic last week at Riverside Park. Um, I did my best to taste as many dishes as possible. I did not find one that was not excellent. Thank you so much for uh, what you did, what you brought, and the time together, fellowship. Um, thank the Lord for the weather. Thank the Lord for the trees and the shade. Even though some people preferred to be out worshiping the sun, it, you had everything you needed. And uh, just appreciate it so much and appreciated uh, Rick and the crew and the barbecue that they provided. Um, and it was just a great day. Amen? I uh, might be a little biased. Last Saturday we had a, a memorial service here, and, and the place was packed, and, and they had a potluck, and they brought in food, and I ate lunch. We have better cooks here. It was... We have the best food in town. And uh, yeah, for no other reason I come to this church is the good food. <laughs> uh, 
It's good to have Brenton home. Been with YWAM for the last several months, and he's going to be with us for a little while, right? Looking to see what the Lord's will is for the next step. Is that correct? Yes? Okay. Good to have you home, Brenton. Good to see you. Um, Wednesday evening service. Um, This Wednesday, we're going to reinstate the service that was suspended when I became physically suspended for a period of time, and those people who were covering for me, their life was, anyway, uh, we're back to Wednesday night, time of praise and prayer, and uh, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. I think it was John Wesley, if it wasn't John, it was his brother, who said, God does nothing except an answer to prayer. The first time I heard it, I thought, yeah, is that true? And then the more I thought about it and the more I read the scripture, Jesus said, pray in this manner. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's given to us a great responsibility through prayer to extend the kingdom of God into the arena of where we live. Prayer services, they can be hard work. He never promised it would be easy. And because the Lord wants us to pray, what do you think Satan does the best and the most? Keeps us from praying. All kinds of things, legitimate things. Um, And I know I'm taking a little too much time for this announcement, but my prayer, my hope is that the Wednesday night prayer time becomes the largest service that we have. And you say, really? Really? That's my prayer. That's my hope. Not just for the sake of the crowd, but I think God wants wants to do incredible things. I have missionary friends around the world where God and other nations is doing things, biblical-type things in terms of miracles and pouring out of His grace. We need that in this city. Um, This is not the sermon, okay? This doesn't count against me. But when Solomon was dedicating the temple that he had built, Um, to fulfill his father's dream to build a permanent house for God to dwell in. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7, you read that service there. There's this prayer between Solomon and, and, and God that takes place. And there's part of this conversation is, if these people, if they walk away from me and become involved in idolatry, I'm going to close the heavens and there'll be a famine. There won't be any rain. There'll be droughts. And in that context, but he said, but if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Lest we go into the message this morning, we're going to highlight again the fact that as a nation, we are in a spiritual famine in so many places in so many ways. 
my personal opinion, climate change has nothing to do with our cars and all of that. God promised in Deuteronomy that if you walk away from me, it's going to affect the weather. Just saying. So, I want to encourage everybody who will come and join us every Wednesday night. The Lord kind of lays something on my heart for prayer focus. Um, I'm inclined to spend less time worrying about it before I get there, but we'll see how that goes. I'm kind of a person who wants to know what's going to happen. But I think the Lord wants us to wait upon Him and allow Him to speak and do things. So, Wednesday night prayer, prayer and praise time. Wednesday morning we have a Bible study that we're going through, John Bevere's book, um, The Awe of God. And uh, seven, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, one hour. And then Monday morning, 10 to 11, we have a, another Bible study, The Awe of God. And, and we're not going very fast, and so uh, you can catch up if you want to join us, a book, workbook to go on. Then next Saturday will be the first meeting. Uh, I'm looking for men. I just feel that the Lord laid on my heart to gather whatever men would allow the Lord to speak to them and be a part of a Bible study as we go through the book, The Man in the Mirror by Patrick Morley. Um, you got two choices. If you're a morning person, Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, if that's not your day, Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock, there's a registration form in the bulletin if you fill that out. So make sure that I have uh, enough books to go around. And... Uh, Drop it in the offering box with along with your tithes and offerings. And appreciate you being faithful with your tithes and offerings. Uh, God will bless you. Uh, but and uh, or you can hand it to me when you go out the door today. And uh, just looking forward to um, that time this fall. Every other uh, the second and fourth Saturday, second and fourth Sunday. It's only twice a month. And uh, just looking forward to uh, what the Lord wants to speak into um, an army of men. Men of God. Um, one other announcement I want to make mention of. I got a call and a text early yesterday morning uh, from Chuck Smith that uh, Joyce uh, Smith had received her promotion uh, sometime Friday night, Saturday morning, and uh, had a heart attack and uh, was ushered into the presence of Jesus. Um, when I typed the bulletin, Yesterday afternoon, I did not know when the service was, but around 1.30 in the morning, we nailed that down with Chuck, and the service will be 2 o'clock next Saturday at the Rivers of Life uh, Assembly of God Church in Kath Lamont, where they've been attending since COVID started. Uh, and uh, so I uh, appreciate all of you who are able to make that short journey. It's only 20-some miles from here to there. Uh, they came from there every Sunday for I don't know how many years to be a part of this family and so uh, just encourage you to, to if you can at all do that uh, be there to encourage Chuck and daughter Shannon and grandson Alan and there's another granddaughter but I don't remember her name but um, they'll all be there next um, Saturday at the Assembly of God Church in um, Kath Lamont.
Are you ready for the message? Ready or not, here it comes. His name was William Henley, born in the United Kingdom in 1849. At the age of 16, as a result of complications from tuberculosis, they had to amputate his left leg. Three or four years later, he began to have problems in his right leg, and uh, there was doctors telling him that he was probably going to lose that knee. He did a search, a frantic search like we do these days, and found a doctor who said, I think I can help you. And uh, sure enough, after several surgeries to that right foot, that leg was saved. It was while recovering from those, particular, from those surgeries that he wrote what became a very famous poem, a poem that to, to this day remains a cultural touchstone in the British culture, Invictus. And let me read to you the four stanzas. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. People who are in the business of interpreting literary works, when I say interpreting them, trying to tell you what the author was trying to say, they have disagreement as to how religious or irreligious this particular uh, poem is. But that title, Invictus, that's Latin for unconquered. This young man, I had all these adversities, but I faced them and I'm unconquered. I'm the master of my soul. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. I begin the message today with that poem in light of the fact of who we've been talking about in Genesis chapter 4, the man named Cain. We have read the story of Cain and Abel in chapter 4, where we saw the first display of, of anger that led to the first murder in the history of the world. Cain, angry at God because his sacrifice was not as acceptable and approved as Abel's was, and jealousy against his brother, reaches out and kills him. He buries his body thinking that he has hid it from God. You cannot hide from God. In fact, the scripture says, one day you give account for every idle thought. Now that's a sobering Wash me with the blood, Jesus. Wash me with the blood. We talked about the conversation between God and Cain when God com confronted him about what he'd done. We began talking about the curse that God pronounced upon Cain. As we continue in chapter 4 this morning and finish the chapter, we're going to see what Jude calls the way of Cain. A man so filled with 
self-pride, so arrogant in his own point, he's not able to ever confess his sin or repent. He was a man who had no fear of God. And while it may not be the way that William Henley meant for us to take it, the way of Cain was and is, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I want to tell you that that is a foolish way to live and die. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Genesis 4.10, reading for context, we won't, re- go th- we won't go through 10, 11, 12 again, but, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The curse he received is a fearful thing. The curse that God placed upon the ground when Adam sinned. God said the ground will now bring forth thorns and and weeds and you're going to have to work it by the sweat of your brow. He compounds that curse by placing it upon Cain himself who was a farmer, who did till the ground. And he's saying to him now, your work is going to be futile. You'll till it, you'll plant it, you'll harvest it, but you will not find a good harvest. It It will let you down. It will let you down. As bad as that curse may seem, the ground, and he's away from, God says, you're out of my presence. Cain's punishment, in my estimation, was less than he deserved. Cain's punishment was less than he deserved. There'd be centuries between Cain and and the time that Moses is writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In that period of time that Moses is writing these first five books of the Old Testament, God has given to him the laws by which they should live by. The Ten Commandments, not only that, but the Jews figured out 613 laws that are in, the, in those five books. And these laws to live by. And in those laws, there are 18 offenses 18 of them that God said, if this person does this, capital punishment is the proper punishment. You do this, you're going to die. 18. One of them was if you kill another person, a life for a life, a life for a life. But God didn't, kill Cain he said you're going to continue to live Cain responded to his sentence with self-pity with self-pity instead of well thank you God for this moment of grace thank you for this opportunity for me to repent somewhere down the line Instead, he responds with self-pity. 
My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now let me paraphrase that in modern day language that I've heard once or twice in my life. It's not fair. I see some of you parents have heard the same thing. And you know what? Sometimes we may not verbalize it out loud, but we've said the same thing to God. It's not fair. It's not fair that this happened to me. I'm a good person. This punishment is greater than I can take. You take away what I love doing. You, you take away where I've lived. You take me out of your presence. Where would we be today if we got what was fair? Where would you be today if God gave you what was fair? We wouldn't be here at all, would we? We would not be here. I think about the two criminals hanging on the cross, one on the other side of Jesus on Good Friday. Remember the crowd began to mock Jesus. If you're the Son of God, then come down from there and save yourself. And they joined in. Save us. If you're really who you are, prove it. Do a miracle and bring us off these crosses. And then one of those thieves, one of those dying criminals, has a revelation. And he begins to speak to the other one. And my paraphrase is, dude, shut up. The scripture says, don't you fear God? We are getting our just what we deserve. But this man has done nothing. That thief understood what Cain did not understand. I'm getting exactly what I deserve. But in his moment of revelation, he took it a step further. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And what he's saying in those words is, I know I'm getting what I deserve. I know, but please, if you have grace, if you can have mercy, have it on this sinful man. And I love what Jesus said. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And he went from dying on the cross to being in the presence of God forever. And here's Cain who cannot confess being driven from the presence of God to be a wanderer forever. He said in verse 13, let's read it again. Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today from, your, from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. In that moment, he declares what he knows he deserves. He knows someone. Now, here's the thing. Everybody alive at that point in time was a brother, a sister, or a cousin. They all came from the same two. Genesis 5, they had more children, sons and daughters. 
one of those brothers or sisters or cousins is going to say, what you did to Abel was not right. Cain understands that. He's living with this guilt already. They're going to find me. How did God respond to his whining? Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain's, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I want you to hear that Cain received a measure of grace. God gave to him a measure of grace. Now, in one aspect, you can look at this, that God made sure that Cain would serve his whole life sentence of wandering and futility. But in his grace, God marked him in such a way that he would never reap exactly what he had sown. He would never die a violent death at the hands of one of his brothers or cousins. He would habitate the world with them, but he was a marked man. I have no clue what that mark is. Different scholars all speculate, and all of them have to come down to the point they say, we have no clue what that mark was. But he's no longer welcome in the presence of the Lord, but he's marked in such a way that people know he's been marked by God. If you touch this man, God will take it out on you seven fools. God promised vengeance. God cursed him. He was cursed and separated from God, but yet God guarded him, a measure of God's grace. There's grace in the book of Genesis from chapter from the beginning of the story, grace is, is shown over and over. In this story, in chapter 4, God came to Cain right after the worship service where his offering of vegetables and fruit was not accepted because of, of something wrong in his heart. And God came to him in grace and said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Master it or it will master you. It was God's warning. If you don't do something, sin is going to grab a hold of you. Satan is going to grab a hold of you. Cain did not listen to the message. He decided to kill his brother anyway. God came to him again in grace. Where is your brother? The grace was, that was a moment he could say, I screwed up. I let anger get the best of me, and I killed my brother. And I buried him right there. But what did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Haven't seen him. I'm not worried about him. God in his grace kept coming to give him opportunity to, be, to repent, ask for forgiveness. But he did not. So now God meets out the judgment. Curses Cain because he had defiled the land with the blood of his brother. Life is in the blood. He defiled the land. He said, I, I, I'm going to make it so the land does not produce for you. Cain said, it's too much. I'll be a hunted man. God said, I'll mark you. No one has the privilege of ending your miserable life but me. It was amazing grace. 
Did he ever repent? We don't know. The writers of the New Testament didn't think so. Jude in his letter talks about the way of Cain and John in his letter said he was of the evil one. He was of the devil. There's nothing positive said about him as the story unfolds. At this point in time, we do not know Cain's outcome for eternity. But this is a good point in the story to stop and think about the gospel. The gospel. I find the gospel in the book of beginnings. The gospel. Chapter 10, verse 4. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Angel's blood, or cry, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. It cried out for justice. If you read in the book of Revelation, the martyrs around the throne crying out for God's justice. Contrast that with the verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A better word than the blood of Abel. What is the better word that the, the blood of Jesus speaks? The blood that he shed on Calvary, the blood that he took into the holy place of heaven before the throne of God and sprinkled on the mercy seat in your behalf and mine? Jesus' blood cries out, there is forgiveness available to you. There is forgiveness available to you. Even as the dying thief experienced the grace when he put his faith in Jesus, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we ask him, for forgiveness with a heart of repentance. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. To be remembered against me no more. I got two amens. Amen? Amen. As believers, we now carry the saving mark of Jesus. Cain was marked, but I want you to know the Scripture says that you and I have been marked with the mark of Jesus. Paul said in Ephesians 1.13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Marked in Him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. In the words of the old hymn that we used to sing probably every other Sunday when I was a kid. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? One of the verses said, Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin, and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed this morning? 
Have you been marked by the Holy Spirit? I'm a child of God. Back to Cain. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod, that's an interesting word. When I click on it in my strong concordance in my computer, it says this, wandering. It means wandering, a place of wandering. And it's directly tied to that statement that you'll be went away from the presence of the Lord. Now, geographically, we have no clue where Nod is or was. Just further away from Eden, further away from the presence of God. Spiritually speaking, Nod is that place where we do not find fulfillment or satisfaction. Nod is that place, spiritually speaking, where we do not find fulfillment or satisfaction. We do not sense the presence of God. Not as where Solomon ended up when he began to be involved in idol worship with some of his 700 wives. Crazy. I thought he was smart. But he went through a period of life. He began to write about it in his diary. And it's a disillusioned diary. He talks about all of his money. He talks about all of his occupations. He talks about all of his knowledge. And he comes to the summation. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. Why? Because there was still this restlessness in his soul. Because he had left the presence of the Lord. Remember the story of Jesus and John chapter 4, I think, where he goes to the well at Sychar in the middle of the day and disciples go to get food and he's sitting there and a woman comes and Jesus says to her, give me the drink. You're talking to me, a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, you're a man, I'm a woman. He said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me of the living water that I can give to you so you'll never have to come here again. She said, give me this water. She was in nod. She was looking for something to satisfy the longings deep in her soul. He said, go get your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You said it right. You've had five of them and now you're living with number six and you're not married to him. Whoa. Before the encounter was over, she embraced the fact that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. He knew everything about me. He told me everything about me. She went and told the city, and the city has a great revival. She moved from Nod to a place of having living water, and there was something in her soul that began to be satisfied. Cain remained a wanderer at heart, even when he tried to settle down. Cain had rejected God and therefore was restless and rootless. Because he had no roots in God, his whole life was restless. He was condemned to per perpetually searching for God's presence, the God that he did not want to submit to, the God he didn't really fear or even believe in. 
There is a place in each one of us. Augustine is the one who became famous for saying something to this effect. But there's a place in each one of us that can only be filled by the presence of Jesus. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Only Jesus. Only His presence. But Cain was cursed to live a life of wandering. But even in his wanderings, Cain experienced common grace. Even in his wanderings, he experienced common grace. Theologians talk about two kinds of grace. Common grace and saving grace. Common grace is the grace that God bestows on everyone. Remember Jesus' words that brings on the just and the unjust. Doesn't make any difference. Sun shines on the just and the unjust. The very fact that any human being is breathing today is God's common grace. It doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not. If you're alive, you're alive because of God's grace. Job said, he holds my breath in his hands. You might think that you are the master of your destiny and the captain of your soul, but there is a sovereign God. It is God's grace that has not plugged the, pulled the plug on this world yet and set it on fire. We are living in an era of God's grace. His common grace as well as saving grace. What is saving grace? Saving grace is knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Saving grace is knowing that your sins are forgiven and your, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life and that to leave this world is to be in the presence of Jesus. I don't know that Cain ever experienced saving grace, but he sure experienced common grace. Verse 17 says this, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called Mehujael, Mehujael fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and had livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah was also born Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Now there's a whole lot of details about primeval history of the world that we do not know. We have a very condensed version of, of Cain's life. In this chapter 4, we've seen that he was born as an adult, he farms the soil, then he murders his brother, then he's a wanderer for a period of time. Somewhere in that storyline, he had married one of his sisters, and they began to have family. God had cursed him to be a fugitive. Fugitive means one who is hiding or running. That's what it means, running or hiding. Could it be? Could it be Cain's building a city was in direct defiance to God's revealed will? I'm just asking the question. I should have put a question mark after it instead of an exclamation point. Is it his defiance? Was this in your face, God? I'm the captain of my own soul. 
the master of my own destiny? That would line up with everything we've seen about Cain thus far in his life. He has not changed his, his ways as the decades pass. He does name his first son Enoch, which means dedicated or consecrated. He doesn't say dedicated or consecrated to what? And then he names the city Enoch. Seems Cain wanted to perpetuate the name of his son. We don't know why, but that's how he names the city. Perhaps thinking that that is going to carry on his legacy. But in Psalms 49, the sons of Korah, they write about the futility of men accumulating wealth and accumulating fame, accumulating notoriety, and putting their names on things. In fact, in verse 11 he said, Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. In other words, it didn't help them a bit when they did acknowledge God. Cain built a city and named it Enoch. Cain built a city that led to a culture, a particular kind of culture, a civilization, people living together for some common purpose. This city being built was being built by his family. We have five generations of this family listed here. And by the way, when you live to be 800, 900 years old, and you keep on having children and children and children. Somebody has calculated that Adam and Eve, from that, there was millions of people born uh, in his 935 years that he lived. Um, so here's this. But notice this. There is no mention, nowhere is there a mention of God in the culture of Enoch. When we talk about the city of Enoch, nowhere is God mentioned. Nowhere. Cain had been barred from the presence of God. So what we have in Genesis 4 is a secular culture. A secular culture. A culture being built by men for men. And by that word men, I don't mean gender specific. I mean mankind. Humankind. A secular culture has no roots and leads to perpetual restlessness. A secular culture has no roots and that leads to perpetual restlessness. In that kind of culture, there's a frantic search a frantic search for something. It's not in my notes, but in the past decade, there has been a movement from the pit of hell, I know that's strong language, to cancel out the roots that this nation was built on. Why? It's because we are a secular nation. One of our presidents declared that to be true. We are a secular nation. And when there is no roots, 
that leads to perpetual restlessness, a, a frantic search to find something to bring satisfaction. Now, I have, when I, when I say this, I'm not talking about our good people who because it's Labor Day weekend, they have a three-day holiday, they're off camping this weekend and they're not in church. But our culture, our culture, especially here in the Northwest, there are millions of people who every weekend, they're going somewhere, doing something, looking to fill some longing deep in their heart thinking that it's this recreation, it's this place, this experience, not realizing what they're looking for is the presence of Jesus Christ in their heart and their life. A restlessness, a restlessness. Living in a secular society and culture is illustrated in part by a story I read that took place years ago in Dublin, Ireland. The English agnostic by the name of Thomas Huxley was there in Dublin for speaking engagement. When the, the meeting was over, he, he left his hotel and he had to catch the, a train at the train station to go to his next destination. When he jumped into one of their famous horse-drawn taxis, he assumed the doorman who had hailed down the taxi had told the taxi driver where this man needed to go, where he needed to go. So when Huxley got in, all he said to the driver is, go fast. And so this guy is beating the horses and they're going at breakneck speed through through the cities of Dublin. And, And it doesn't take very long and Huxley realizes we're not going towards the station. So he shouted out to the driver, do you know where you're going? No, but I'm going fast. That describes the culture in which we live today. People living and leading in the way of Cain without the fear of God. Thinking we can be the captain of our own destiny. Going fast to nowhere. I read another quote this week that I had never read before. In Franklin D. Roosevelt's first inaugural address when he had been elected President of the United States. We don't know where we are going, but we are on our way. Typical man. That's a city without God. That's life with no regard or fear for God. Let's talk about Lamech the fifth generation. He introduced culture to polygamy. To polygamy. Verse 19, And Lamech took two wives. When God created humankind, mankind, God's plan is a father leaves his mother and father, or man leaves his father and mother and becomes one flesh with his wife. Jesus reiterated that principle when the uh, religious leaders in his day came to talk to him about divorce. And he said, God never planned for divorce. Moses gave you the law of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. But he said, in the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God's plan, one man, one woman. Do 
You're going to read all through Gen- you're going to read all through the Old Testament. Bad people, good people, marrying more than one woman, and it turned out to be a disaster every time. Every time. Five generations, this part of Adam's family tree about life, they went about life without regard to God. And yet, Cain's family enjoyed God's common grace for a period of time. They experienced God's common grace for a period of time. Now, I know there are scientists and archaeologists who want you to believe that the first human beings were ape-like, ignorant, had no skills, couldn't even stand up straight. I believe that is, in spiritual terms, hogwash. I believe the first man and his family were super intelligent, super creative. I mean, God said to Adam, you name all of these creatures. Read the story of Cain's family. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. From Cain's offspring came some massive cultural advances that enriched the lives of people then and even now. Adah's two sons, Jabal and Jubal, excelled in their God-given skills. We learn in Exodus 36.1 that it's God who gives wisdom and skills to men. Whatever talents and abilities you have, God gave them to you. God gave them to you for his purposes. So Jabal excelled in livestock and agribusiness, if we put it in today's terms. He excelled in that. People live in tents and have livestock and beef, lamb chops. Jubal excelled in making music. Making music. It's interesting, his name. It becomes connected with the Hebrew word for jubilee, the year of jubilee that God declared every 50 years should be a year of jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, there was a special shofar, a special horn that this priest was supposed to blow. And and it sounds very much in the Hebrew word like jubil, music. Then there's her half-brother, Tubal Cain. He excelled in technology and industry, in the founding days of technology and industry. He forged tools. I guess you'd call him a blacksmith. And he created tools to help him do their work. He probably created tools to go to war with. And I'll speak more about that in a moment. All three of the Lamech's boys were given gifts with which to advance life in the culture. These skills should be and can be devoted to the highest interest of human life and to the glory of God. They should be and can be devoted to the highest interest of human life and to the glory of God. Though they were living in the way of Cain, God's grace was still a part of their existence. And they should have been able to acknowledge him for who he was. But I don't think it happened. 
as I read this account, Cain's legacy, his family tree, ended with Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal. Some people think there's some significance to the fact that Tubal's name was hyphenated with Cain. They believe that it indicates there was a dark side to use his skill to forge metal into instruments of vengeance and instruments of destruction. The advancements in civilization apart from God have untold potential for evil. The advancements, the technology can do a whole lot of good. But when we leave God out of the picture, a whole lot of evil can take place. Let's talk about nuclear technology for a moment. Nuclear technology has done a a great deal of good for mankind. There are cities that their electrical source is from nuclear power. They have heat. They have air conditioning. They have all those things that electricity can buy for you. Some of us have been to the doctor and the doctor says, in order for me to see what's going on in your body, we need to do a little nuclear test. And they give you this stuff to drink and tell you to come back in two hours. And then they take a picture of the stuff that's gone through your bloodstream. And for some people, that has been salvation for their body. Because nuclear technology, there's some very positive things that can take place. But what happens when you leave God out of the picture? People in Japan discovered what happens when you use it for destruction. In the 50s, we all knew where the bomb shelters were. I don't think they would do us any good, but we all knew where they were because of what happened in the 40s. Today, there are several nations around the world. If some man loses all sense of that nuclear technology, anyway, what about microchips? placed under the skin of your dog and your dog never gets lost because you can find it. But with that same kind of chip, they can program a smart bomb to come through your bed and window. Can you imagine life without any drugs at all? No painkillers, no aspirin. For a week, I was thankful for oxycodone. I took minimum amount, but when I wanted to go to sleep and sleep for more than a minute or two, I took one. And for that first week, even the first week home, a couple nights, it was, thank the Lord for oxycodone. But here's the tragic thing. There are millions of people in the world today hooked on narcotics and it has devastated their life. We have had 
people who sat in this place who one day put heroin or fentanyl in their system and they were gone just like that. It can be used for good. But when we leave God out of the picture, it kills them. What about music? I love music that brings glory and honor to the Lord. Music can calm my soul. Music can usher us into the presence of God. Or music can become the tool of Satan himself to propagate lies into the culture, to influence the culture. The lyrics of songs today glorifying things that God said are sin and making them sound romantic and wonderful. The agenda of hell today in the air of entertainment is to make almost any evil appear good and compelling. Cain's family seems to have enjoyed a level of prosperity. They seem to have enjoyed a level of prosperity. They had some agricultural prosperity. They enjoyed the arts, technology as their civilization advanced. But here's the thing about a culture apart from God offers no redemption. A culture apart from God offers no redemption. It doesn't matter how advanced our society becomes, culture cannot and will not save us. Every advancement that Cain's family and city made was totally wiped out by the flood of God's judgment. I hear the words of Jesus. What does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Oh, that our culture today, our secular culture, would hear those words. Forfeits his soul. That means you willingly give it up. You willingly make an exchange. I can only remember one time I ever forfeited a game that I was involved in. And that was because we didn't have anybody to replace the people who got injured. And the rules said you have to have so many people on the field at this particular time to play this game. And because we couldn't find a person to fill that place, we had to give it up. But every day there's people forfeiting their soul for stuff, for fame. said to his wife, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lemek, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then let Lemek's, then Lemek's is seventy-sevenfold. This guy is Cain on steroids. He's evil. This has been called the 
sword song by many scholars. Now, there's no mention of a sword here, but he's calling his wives to listen to this rant. Maybe it was a rap. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. The Hebrew word there is it would actually be a child for a slight wound. And rather than feeling shame, he's proud of his violence and declared it so. I already referred to the fact that President Obama said we are a secular nation, no longer a Christian nation. The result is being lived out on a daily basis. Mass killings are now a weekly thing. Violence, crimes against people, hate crimes are on the rise and not on the fall. We see men and women with the spirit of Lamech. They have no fear of God. They have no fear of God. Lamech said, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. It might be difficult to understand exactly what he's saying by this declaration, but it seems to me that he is arrogant, and in his arrogance he said, God said if anyone messes with Grandpa Cain, God will take vengeance on them sevenfold. Well, listen to me, my wives. Lamech's, Lamech's revenge against anyone hurting me is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech taught his family the way of vengeance. It taught his family the way of vengeance. He took glory in vengeance. I find it more than coincidental. The words of Jesus to Peter in Matthew chapter 18. Look at it in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Lamech promoted an avalanche of vengeance. Jesus promotes an avalanche of forgiveness. Lamech said, I will take vengeance 77-fold. Jesus said, Lamech, you need to learn to forgive your brother 77-fold. We are commanded to forgive. Forgiveness is not an option. You cannot tell me I just can't forgive. The Bible says you can. Because as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus, we can forgive one another. Right after the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, we read these words. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a dark message thus far, except when I chuck the gospel in between there. But I wanted us to see how it ends in this chapter. At the same time Cain was building a civilization, civilization and the culture in the land of Nod, 
the city of Enoch, there was a third son born to Adam and Eve, and his family began building another culture. Verse 25 said this, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Eve called her third son granted. That's what Seth means, granted, granted. She recognizes this child has been granted to her by God. Remember, she thought that Cain was going to be the answer to the prophecy that one day one of her seed would crush the serpent's head, but Cain didn't prove to be that person. But God gives her a second chance. He grants her a second chance. He sends Seth. And this time the grace of God was not in vain and through Seth. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. A writer by the name of Kenneth Matthews captures the significance of men beginning to call on the name of the Lord. And a quote from Kenneth Matthews is, Cain's firstborn and successor pioneer cities, civilized arts. But Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. That's what they did. They worshiped. And they did more than what the renderings that call upon the name of the Lord that, that, that suggests this, because in Moses' writings, call upon regularly means proclaimed. They proclaimed the name of the Lord. And by proclaiming the name of the Lord, what that means is to make proclamation about the nature of the Lord. To make proclamation about the nature of the Lord. And in those days, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So in earth's ugliest ages, a special people began to develop proclaiming the name of the Lord. When the Canaanite civilization began to rise and worship the shrines of, of abundance and affluence and art and technology, abuse and violence, devaluation, when men fancied they were the captain of their souls, Sethite civilization began to proclaim the name of the Lord, the captain of their salvation. Before Abraham, before Moses and the law, before David and the covenant, God's people were known for this. They proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's the distinctive of God's people. They proclaim the name of the Lord. They sing his praises. That's what God's people have done all through the periods of time of sacred history. So this chapter 4 that's been so dark ends with a shout of grace. Out of our text provides us this paradigm, an outline to understand the civilization and the culture Today, and its seeming rise and its increase in abundance, music, arts, and technology. The things that we've created are impressive. But it leads to demise because of sin. The only hope 
for our culture. The only hope for your soul. The only hope for the church is to call upon the name of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ. The scripture says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved.